Say one, two, three, four. One, two, three, four. You're listening to Song and Story, conversations with songwriters about their songs. You can support this project on Patreon, and you can listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Learn more at songandstorypodcast.com. I've been holding on to this episode for a while now. In fact, this was actually the very first conversation that I recorded for this podcast. My guest is Jimmy Mitchell. Jimmy is a pianist, a composer, a gifted storyteller, and he's the founder and chief curator of Love Good, a subscription company based in Nashville, Tennessee. Love Good inspires everyday consumers to raise their standard for media and to build a better culture. You can currently download their new spring mixtape for free at lovegoodculture.com free. For the record, I'm not getting paid anything to give this pitch. My wife and I have been patrons of Love Good since they were founded in 2013, and we have discovered some amazing independent artists and music in that time. From Scott Mulvihill to Dawson Hollow, Michelle Mandico, Jackie Traco, Maria Price, Rebecca Rubion, all of whom were featured in season one of Song and Story, and so many more. Lovegoodculture.com. Check it out. Be a patron. Support the arts. Hashtag boom. Now, back to this episode. Maybe you've heard this one. It's the story about Beethoven's Third Symphony. Specifically, it's about the title of Beethoven's Third Symphony. It's known now as Symphonia Eroica, or Heroic Symphony, but the original working title was Bonaparte, after Napoleon Bonaparte. Beethoven, at one point, had a great admiration for Napoleon. But then Napoleon did something that Beethoven couldn't accept. He declared himself Emperor of the French. Upon hearing this news, in a fit of rage, Beethoven tore up the title page and declared Napoleon a tyrant. Not long after he completed the score, Beethoven had it published under a longer Italian title that I won't attempt to pronounce here, but in English it translates to Heroic Symphony, composed to celebrate the memory of a great man. We generally celebrate the memories of great men at funerals, wakes, and memorials. So giving this title to this symphony was perhaps Beethoven's way of letting Napoleon know, you're dead to me. Knowing the history of the symphony's title inevitably affects the way we listen to it. The title alone gives us a sort of audible lens, a sonic filter through which we experience the emotion and the themes evoked by and within the music. And I share all of this because today's episode features a song by Jimmy Mitchell. And like Beethoven's Third Symphony, Jimmy's song has no lyrics. Like Beethoven's heroic symphony, the only words we're given to provide some initial context for a story, to act as our sonic filter, are the two words that make up the song's title. I'm Jimmy Mitchell from Nashville, Tennessee, and you're about to hear a song from my 2014 album, Through It All. 
The song is called The Battle. Tell me if this is still your tendency, because I think the only time I was ever in the studio when you were recording a track was when we were putting together the Glory Collective project. I don't remember what studio it was in Nashville. Uh, Chris Cole and I were there with Alan, uh-huh. and you came in to do a piano piece. I don't remember which one it was. This was maybe 2012. Interesting. And what I remember is you <laughs> sat down at the piano... <laughs> And Alan cut the sound in the control room. And we were like, oh, we want to hear that. And he said, I'm not allowed to listen. He said he doesn't want he doesn't want anybody listening when he's <laughs> recording it. And I was like, I kind of laughed because I thought he was joking or maybe that he just wanted to talk. And I was like, wait, really? He goes, yeah. He goes, he, he, I'm not allowed to listen when he's recording. Is that true? It's because I'm often writing as I'm recording. I mean, here's what happens. I don't always come into the studio with a full blown idea you know both of my records you know eight tracks on through it all and 12 on love and epic i'm coming in with a pretty good sense of things and a and a direction for each song and a bunch of chicken scratch written down on a steno uh, pad 
But there is so much that happens in the moment. And I just, if I like it, I say, okay, I, I guess that's how it's going to be forever. And again, I think this is where we might just be a little different. Like I'm not as particular as long as, again, this kind of sense of things is, is really protected. And uh, I do think this is an area where I could grow as a musician. I would love to not come in with 12 ideas and be completely certain that each of them need to be recorded. And, you know, I kind of have a sense for each one of them. And, and then I run with it. I, I'd much rather have 30 or 40 songs, you know, and actually like sit down with somebody else, like a producer, well in advance and decide on which 10 or which 12 are really most worthy of a record. That's, you know? that's one way to do it. Yeah. And if you want to try it, great. Um, I'm, I'm of the opinion that in terms of writing a song or recording, producing a song, there is no right way to do it. It's, it's whatever works for the artist for the project. That's, mm-hmm. that's what I think should be done. Um, so don't feel any pressure to do that. And, and I wasn't like pointing this aspect out that we weren't allowed to listen when we were recording as a flaw about your character in any way. I, I've always wondered, like, is it self-conscious? Like that, you know, if we're in there listening, you'll be thinking about that and you'll, it'll, hmm. it'll distract you. Is it a self-conscious thing or is it just, you want to be alone as alone as you possibly can? Or is it not, you don't even think about it that much, it's just a preference? I think it's, if I had to say accurately uh, an answer to that question, it'd be none of the above. Uh, If I had the song fully written, then I would just not care at all who was listening as I was recording. So uh, it's not a self-consciousness of like playing, but it probably is a self-consciousness of like letting somebody into my creative process as Ah, it's being captured in a way that might be final or might not be final or in a way that I could end up absolutely hating, but I don't really want to talk about it. I just want to kind of keep moving, you know, in in other words, uh, what ends up becoming a a fairly like finalized project uh, in the moment doesn't feel that way to me. And I I think because, you know, there's something kind of, scary i suppose about inviting people in like co-writing for example that's a that's a difficult thing for i don't i do not like it yeah at all exactly it requires a, a certain vulnerability it requires it's definitely like a some level of give and take you know and, and at times what feels like compromise i'm sure yeah i can be mean to myself and take as long as i want with a song or a piece of music um it's a lot harder to be mean to somebody It's else. a lot harder to be mean to somebody else, and I don't like doing that, mm-hmm. and I don't want there to be any bitterness. I don't ever want to listen to a song and think, I still disagree with this, <laughs> you know? Uh, I've seen you perform this piece on a number of occasions, and it's often in a setting where you are, you're talking quite a bit in between songs and really sharing about personal experiences, and, and you'll play the song that either came from that or that encapsulates that so if we could begin what is the battle what was the battle well it is interesting because i i'm not really a lyricist although i i do love words i mean i love even just the the composition of a sentence and the the structure of a paragraph and uh, it's funny, I don't necessarily know how to piece them together. And so I, I put a lot of heart and a lot of myself into melodies as much as I do into you know the talks that I might give or the stories I might tell. So for me, it's it's still the same art. It's the same 
process. And the, the battle really just began with a very deep emotion, one of pain and confusion. And, you know, kind of recognizing that there's a there's a tension within my own soul, within my own heart. You know, there's light and there's darkness. You know, there's there's good and there's evil. And that's not a very comfortable thing to think about. And um, you probably want to hear the story behind the song. Would that be helpful? Yeah. If if you feel inclined to course, share that, yeah. I mean, that's so that's what I'm familiar with. Yeah. And I if if you're comfortable sharing that. Yeah, I played a very unfinished version of this song at my brother's funeral about seven years ago, and it was actually the first song I'd ever written. Um, I suppose that was worth sharing. You know, we've all written lots of songs. Sure. Hopefully the world will never have to listen to. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and this one, it, it just sort of began as this kind of very tense and kind of progressive um, song, obviously written in a very kind of minor key. And um, the week that my brother passed away, it it started to make sense to me. You know, I mean, there was sort of this this deeper emotion of, of anguish that we've all felt before, but that was really risen to the surface, obviously, the, the week of, of Bobby's passing. And it really also called to mind this, um, this really incredible encounter that I had had with him about a year and a half prior, so obviously okay. a year and a half before he had died. And I was over at his apartment in Atlanta, Georgia. He had called me up somewhat out of the blue and I happened to be in town that weekend he said Jimmy I just woke up from this dream and I don't think anybody is going to believe me uh, except you when I when I share it so could you come over and uh, and Bobby you know we were certainly becoming better and better friends as adulthood went on I mean we we weren't enemies by any means in childhood and adolescence but we definitely weren't close friends and so there was a, a real kind of new relationship unfolding with Bobby at this time. And so I was kind of excited for those little moments of vulnerability and connection and, you know, just felt like, all right, we've, we've, we've got like a, uh, a real relationship here, you know, with, with real opening up of, of our lives and our joys and our struggles. And so this, it was exciting, but it was also feeling like, okay, this is, this is becoming a new part of my relationship with Bobby. So, so you were kind of, um, intrigued and excited at the fact yeah. that he you of all the people you were the one that of course it, his bio- blood brother was the one that he wanted to call right okay right and you know at the time i was living a very missionary lifestyle where i was traveling a lot and um really sharing my faith on a lot of different levels with people all over the world and i think he knew that and he saw a certain joy and purpose in that which is probably what sparked this phone call and so i, I immediately dropped my things off at my mom's house and I, I take my car straight over to Bobby's apartment and I walk in and he refuses to make eye contact with me. He sort of has his head in his hands and he's sitting in a chair and I can tell he's not only upset and has been crying but has also been been sick, you know. Um, it was not a, a, a pretty sight to walk into and I sat down next to Bobby and uh, obviously I, I didn't think there was much time here for for pleasantries so I just listened and he started to tell me about this really nightmare he'd woken up from now granted it was a Friday afternoon he was working for IBM Monday through Thursday uh, traveling the country and he'd often working out of his home office on Friday so my guess is he sat down 
Probably not to the the chili that I just enjoyed from your mom, which is about as as good of a lunch as I've had in a long time. <laughs> sure. uh, but you know, he had some kind of lunch that just made him sleepy enough to take a nap on accident, and then stay asleep for two hours, just long enough to have what he described later as the most painful experience of his life. So, can I interject of here? Um, what what were your thoughts kind of on your on your way over? You kind of shared it a little bit. That you were kind of excited and intrigued. Yeah. What, what was your mindset on the way over there versus? when you walk in and kind of get a, your first glimpse or feel of what state he's in, how, yeah. how did your perception of this experience kind of what was about to happen change? Yeah, there was certainly a sense that something really life-changing could unfold in this conversation. And again, kind of given my missionary lifestyle at that time, I, I was probably more open than even I am now to extraordinary moments like that. Okay. Life-changing conversations and encounters with people. Because frankly, I was very used to it, you know. When when you're used to watching, you know, uh 15-year-olds completely turn their lives around by the grace of God, seemingly against all the odds. Sure. It suddenly doesn't seem so crazy for your 26-year-old brother to have this, you know, quarter-life crisis that could obviously spearhead, you know, or or at least be a gateway into a, a real life-changing sort of conversion, right? So I came in pretty hopeful, pretty excited. And as I sat down, I just thought, all right, this this could be big. And I, I got to stay out of the way and try to stay quiet more than anything. And sure enough, Bobby began to describe this dream. And he said towards the very beginning of it, there was this army of what he described as evil spirits, right? Now, Bobby would not have been you know, practicing the faith, any faith really at this time um, in a very consistent way. You know, he probably went to church on Christmas and maybe Easter, but it wasn't like he had much religious or spiritual language, much less thoughtfulness in his day-to-day life. But he's using immediately like fairly intense, profound, and thoughtful language. I'm thinking, okay, this has got to be real. Like this is not, Bobby's not making this up obviously, and it's also completely out of the norm for him sure and he uh, he goes on to describe these evil spirits as if they were hovering over him um, suffocating him uh, again he described it as the most painful experience of his life and I think as the dream unfolded he just was increasingly sinking into a kind of despair and towards the end of the dream he said Jimmy I suddenly saw this army of good spirits as he described them and they were coming one by one to fight off the evil spirits. And he said, Jimmy, I saw you and I saw mom and I saw our sister Haley on the front lines of that army of good spirits. And so when I woke up and y'all weren't with me, I just immediately began crying because I was so upset and felt so alone. And then when the images of those evil spirits and the pain they were inflicting on me came back to my memory, I um, just got sick to my stomach and couldn't stop throwing up. And he said it was about then that he had called me. Now, mind you, at this point, he hasn't made any eye contact. His head is still in his hands. He almost sounds embarrassed, you know, to share this story. And I'm just feeling incredibly privileged to be on the receiving end of it. So not too long after this, uh, we just begin processing out loud, trying to make sense of what had just happened. And I suppose 15, 20 minutes into that conversation, I had mentioned maybe for the third time, that perhaps uh, spending some time in prayer 
uh, even going to our church, which happened to just be down the road. Maybe even sitting down with a priest friend of ours would be helpful because it, it all felt very out of my league and out of, you know, kind of beyond my pay grade to, sure. to sort of walk Bobby through this or to journey with him through this. And uh, at this point, it was almost like it was his idea. He's like, yeah. No, I think I would like to sit down with, with a priest. And, you know, we grew up Catholic, and one of the big parts of our faith has always been confession. I'm not sure, you know, if if the whole world quite understands this sacrament, you know, the way that the church does. Um, but for me personally— Most most of most of Christendom doesn't understand yeah. it the way the, the way the Catholic Church does, so— it's interesting because for me personally, yeah. it's be, it's become not just a place of, I don't know, freedom and healing and, and peace. Um, sometimes it's kind of just like a place of like mental um, restoration too. You know, like I, right. I kind of think if the whole world had the courage to confess their sins or confess what maybe they only understand right now to be the struggles and, and the real kind of difficulties of life that, you know, especially when they've inflicted pain on others, um, when they have been, you know, uh, uh, kids disobedient to their parents, teachers, and coaches, any one of us who have who have been lacking in integrity and honesty and, and all these things that we can all kind of agree are, are worthwhile virtues, you know? Yeah, so this this is interesting to me because um, something that we ha- we have seen so much of in the age of people getting caught up in whatever the the news story of the day is, everybody is always really wrapped up in it. The court of public opinion, it's guilt and shame until the person is is excommunicated from either, society, from society right. either either kicked off of of Twitter or they're fired from their job. Um, wow, yeah. So I, I think the alternative uh, that has been embraced is guilt, shame, and penance with almost no no option or offer invitation for forgiveness and reintroduction. That's right. A re-embrace to the, to the community. It really is an amazing way to look at it. We, we don't have a culture of mercy, you know? Like, you can't give mercy until you've first received it, and you can't receive it until you recognize your need for it. And I suppose that was exactly where my brother was. For the first time in 10 years, he was recognizing his need for mercy. Uh, a mercy that would, that would set him free. A mercy that would move him forward and not shackle him the way that so much of his life had for the previous decade. And so sure enough, we, uh, I text a really close priest friend of mine. And within three, four, five minutes, I get a, a response and he says, yeah. Yeah, I'll be waiting for Bobby in the confessional at St. Jude's, the parish just down the road. And that's a small miracle. I mean, priests are busy people. And sure enough, Bobby hopped into my car. We drove over there together. He walks into that little room that we call the confessional. And uh, about an hour later, he walked out. And the difference between the before and after was palpable. And he walked in looking like he was carrying the weight of the world on his shoulders. And you could sense that there was a whole lot of pain and suffering and guilt, as you put it, shame, much of which was probably self-inflicted. Sure. um, But also society-inflicted as he walked in. And when he came out, it was like he became a five-year-old kid again. And it suddenly felt like I was 
getting my brother back. You know, he looked like he was floating three inches off the ground, and I hadn't seen him look so light in a long time. There's this great image that my favorite author, G.K. Chesterton, uses a lot. That, In fact, the, the angels can fly because they don't take themselves too seriously. They're light, you know? And he says, well, it's, it's, the, it's the demons, the fallen angels, who, uh, who fell by the weight of their seriousness, by the weight of their gravity, you know? And it was the first time in a long time that I was seeing my brother with a lightness and a joy and an, and an ease. I mean, even in his step, that was really visible. And, uh, you know, sort of like the uh, the prodigal son had come home for a moment. And we didn't have a fattened calf to slaughter, but um, we did go out for a steak dinner there. <laughs> sure. So you let someone else slaughter it. And, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, the next place I think for me to, to go with this is, and this is what I... I want to understand and learn a little more about your your process as a composer. When did you start writing this piece, the song, the battle? Was it was it before this experience? Was it after? Was it kind mm-hmm. of in between this experience and his death? Mm-hmm. And in terms of the music that was written for it and the title, was it always directly linked with this experience, this story, with this dream? Yeah, it was... Not always directly linked is the quick answer. In okay. fact, I think this is a little bit of my my creative process is I, I probably have three things going on at once at any given moment. The first is real life, you know, yeah. and just the emotions that go with any given day. Uh, the second is I am always trying to make sense of things. There's a part of me that is fairly introspective and reflective, and I want to be able to look at my past and and see some in- integrity, some unity of life, some sense of of cohesiveness and continuity, right? So while I'm always trying to live in the present and, and experience even the emotions of any day deeply, I'm always, you know, secondly, trying to reflect on the past and grow in wisdom and kind of make sense of things in light of wherever I happen to be. Sure. But then there's a third thing that's always happening, which I would say is fairly independent, which is this kind of ongoing creative process. And that often is like words and phrases that I find very captivating. I mean, even apart from my personal experience of life, I just can see the objectiveness of of beauty. And I I love rejoicing in that. Um, That's kind of how I curate the music I listen to, the books that I end up reading. It's like this... This third thing where um, you know beauty just has this constant grip on me. And so as a musician and now as a composer, I'm always tinkering with melodies and I'm always working with different chord progressions and I'm always trying to let my fingers slip off the key that they're supposed to be on so I can, you know, by way of a mistake, come across something really new and cool and different. And so what happens when I end up deciding on the title of a song or even the final sort of composition and flow of a song, those three things come together. The emotion of, of a moment, the, um, you know, the kind of the profound reflection about life and particularly my life story up until that point, and then also this, this melody often, this creative thing that's happening on the piano that somehow bridges the gap and captures it all at once uh thanks for asking that question that is the most lucid my thoughts have ever been about my own oh, good, process good. right there well so this is why i'm wondering um 
Bruce Springsteen in his episode of VH1 Storytellers, which I think he taped in uh, 2005. One thing he says is a good title can get you a long way. Mm -hmm. In in general with your music, do you have a title or a theme or a concept in Mm -hmm. mind? And then you start to kind of work out pieces of music that fit that title? Or do you have morsels and pieces of music and eventually you say, you know what, I'm going to try these two together. I'm going to merge them. And then once you've got the feel of it, do you then say, this is what this song feels like to me. This feels like wonder. Mm. So I'm going to call this wonder. Yeah. So talk about that in general, but then also specifically how it relates to this song, to, mm-hmm. to the battle. So I say it's mostly morsels and pieces and dappled things okay. that sort of come together with time. In the case of the battle, sometime after Bobby's dream and that incredible encounter he had in confession... I would have been working on this melody, but it was fairly independent of the whole experience with Bobby. And then when he passed away a year and a half after that dream, my sister and I, I don't think we did the music for the funeral by any means, but we did at least a song. And I don't know actually if my sister sang or not. I just remember playing that song um, towards the end of the actual funeral mass for my brother. And it was it was very unfinished. In fact, I played it two weeks later at a Christmas concert dedicated to Bobby. Yes, and that was the first time I ever heard it because yeah. you sent me that CD. You yeah, made a live that, recording of it. That CD is not available anywhere, thanks be to God, <laughs> right. because it's it's great, but it's like literally, you know, in the in the wake of some pretty intense suffering. Sure. And, um, and it was just kind of a thrown-together band of really good friends of mine in Nashville and you know, if I go back and I listen to that song, it's nothing like how it ended up on the record, you know, which was my, my debut album through it all. And by the time that record came out, I finally had a, a title for it. And yes, it still had a lot to do with Bobby because of the funeral. But only then did I really begin to piece it together with his dream, which was so very much a battle scene from start to finish. But what I most intended for that track by the time the album released was to capture the tragedy and the tension um, of of heaven as a third of the angels fell in disobedience to God and and hell became a thing and um, Satan and his minions began prowling the earth you know sure so that and, album and it, you know it's a walk through salvation history so that was the that was the ultimate intent sure, sure. and and it, i i would like to think that anybody who doesn't you know accept all of that on theological grounds can appreciate it as a universal inward struggle mm-hmm. of the human person right versus wrong um the, that tension that you describe it comes through on the track with the way it was produced. So how much involvement did you have in that? And what I mean by that is there's the piano piece Mm -hmm. just on its own. And it's phenomenal the way that you perform it when you're solo. But on the record, there's, there are some strings in there. Mm -hmm. Is it a violin? Is it a cello, a viola? I think all the above. It's more or less a string quartet. Oh, it is. Okay. Okay. I, with some synth things happening. Okay. Okay. So there's one part I tried to listen to it real closely uh, before we started this because I, I wanted to be able to remember it so I could kind of hum it yeah. so people could kind of isolate the part. 
you know, you're doing the bum 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 bum. By the way, I tried to play that a couple nights ago, and I completely botched it. I didn't know. I didn't. Know. <laughs> I hadn't played the song in a while, and I tried to do it, and I couldn't remember that bit. I but, didn't yeah. notice. But thanks notice. for remembering it yeah. for me here. <laughs> well, that's it. So, so the the keys are doing um, the keys are doing bum 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 right, bum right. bum bum bum, and underneath that, at the same time, <laughs> the strings are going. And those feel like two very different strains of tension, mm-hmm. uh, two very different emotions. Like I can't tell which one of them feels like goodness and which one of them feels like evil. They they both mm-hmm. kind of feel like chaos and confusion, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> kind of converging. So just having having no context, like having not heard you talk about what the idea of the battle means to you listening to to the pieces uh, to the instruments um I, I guess picking each part out as i listen to the track uh it's it's fun for me to be able to to get mm. that sense of it just listening to the music and mad props to sean williams who not only produced that record but who wrote all those string parts so he's the genius behind that you know tension that you were just describing how did uh did you have any did you want any creative control over that? Did you give him full liberties to do it? And at I, any at any point with any of the songs, did you say, "I like this, but I but I don't like this"? Maybe go in this direction with it. <laughs> or how'd you do that? As as I often say with you, Kevin, I <laughs> I trust Sean implicitly. Okay. You know, it's funny. I I really recognize my own limitations. I I never studied music. You didn't either, did you? At least I formally. Know. Yeah. No, I know nothing about it. Isn't that funny? But I I would guess that you would have more of an ear, uh, even just having looked in occasionally on your process of production. I mean, you, I think, like to have the final say yeah. on most of your records, most of your songs, a- right? Every, yeah, so that's that's why I was curious um, in terms of what having other instrumentation on your on your tracks is like for you. Do you hear certain pieces that you know you want going in um, or not? Yeah, quick answer is no. <laughs> yeah, I'm usually just floored by what someone like Sean can come up with. And I think part of it's that I I don't necessarily have a sharp ear, but I have a really good sense of things. You know, even, I don't know, I often feel this way when I'm reading a book or watching a movie, listening to a new album. Um, I'm always uh, fairly engaged on kind of the, the higher level of 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 a of a creative process and I have a harder time getting into the details or even noticing the details but there's a there's a real appreciation for them and I can I can sense and feel the difference right right but I wouldn't be able to um, orchestrate that that difference myself okay and I think what's so great about Sean is we worked together on so many projects that it was it was easy and you know I'm sure I gave him some feedback I'm sure there were certain things that were turned up and turned down and certain Parts that were completely eliminated. There's no doubt about that. But ultimately, yeah, Sean, you know, he's easy to trust. And he knows me. And he actually knows my particularities, too. And I'm sure that's been your experience, too, with producers in the past. You, you kind of want, like, just the right chemistry there so that there's a there's an ease in, in the working relationship and a, a sort of understanding, even if it's unspoken, of how you as the artist ultimately want things to sound like, you know? Sure. I think I think I've probably heard all of your songs 
just solo piano. So listening to the records, and when I hear the other instrumentation, um, I don't I don't ever question it. I'm just in- interested in it. Mm. And so mm. I think to me that's a testament to your ability to trust people implicitly, <laughs> and it's and it's and it's a testament to uh, Sean Williams's ability. I mean, the the first time I met Sean, he was younger, living at at your one of the houses. Yeah, you had a bunch of guys. He was a housemate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and I. I've been there a couple of times, and uh, I didn't. I had no idea that he played violin. And when I found out, I was like, "Oh, you play?" He goes, "He goes, yeah, I'm all right." Like for Martina McBride. Yeah. And know? then I heard him play like a year later, and I was like, "Whatever, man, you're just all right. Shut up." You know, he's just like, <laughs> he was phenomenal. And uh, yeah. And so, so it's it's a testament to him as a as a producer and as someone who I, at least on on your record didn't do anything to make himself stand out, but did what was right for the tracks. Yeah. Like that's always, that's really important. Yeah. And you know, part of the magic there is I always record all of the piano and th- this, every bit of every song is finalized on the piano side of things. Once it lands in Sean's inbox. Right. And we yeah. live in the same town, but all these files are kind of shared digitally. And then he just goes to town with the strings. And I think that's actually what allows me to play the songs with only the piano, and they still have a, a, a certain fullness oh, about yeah. them. And then suddenly you hear the record with the strings, and there's a continuity there for obvious reasons. Sure. But a, a further kind of um, layer, you know, or just uh, a depth that, that, that wouldn't have been there, you know, in a live show. I, I'm just glad that I can... I can do this solo thing. And that's what's interesting is I play that song and I play many of my songs and give many of my talks in a lot of different environments. So, you know, I was at this school in England, a very, you know, on paper Catholic school in the Midlands of, of the United Kingdom and uh, played that song and pl- kind of played it in the context of, of a larger talk. And this kid walked up to me afterwards and he goes, you know, Jimmy, I... I really, he said a much cooler English accent than I'll be able to pretend to have right now. I've heard your English accent, so I'm not going to ask you to do it. it Even over there, they make fun of me bad. (laughs) Uh, But they love our American accent, so I'll stick with that. And his name's Fergus. He walks up to me. He says, Jimmy, I I think I'd really like to go to confession. And uh, I was like, okay. I mean, I told the story of Bobby's dream and kind of painted this bigger picture of salvation history. And here I'm at a Catholic school, so I'm assuming there's some context for all this, but he actually has no idea how to go to confession. There's just, you know, at least in that moment, a real desire for mercy, I suppose, and freedom, as I had described it. And so I said, well, okay, has it just been a long time? Or, you know, what's the deal? How, how, how can I help you? And as the conversation continued, it turns out he wasn't Catholic. In fact, he had never even been baptized, so he wasn't even Christian. But there was this desire deeply rooted in this 15-year-old boy's heart for mercy. And I thought, that that's it. This is a transcendent need and reality on the human heart to be forgiven and to have the power to forgive and yet to recognize our need for it in the first place is that there's a battle raging within each of us. And I want good to win. I want goodness to win out. And that's a daily fight for me.
Thank you for listening to Song and Story. If you enjoyed my conversation with Jimmy and you'd like to check out more of his music, it's available on iTunes, Amazon, Spotify, all those sites. If you're like me and you still prefer physical copies, compact discs, vinyl records, album artwork to hold in your hand, check out lovegoodculture.com to purchase Jimmy's albums. And if you enjoy listening to the songs and stories shared on this podcast, please consider supporting this project on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash songandstory. Monthly patrons at various levels of giving receive access to occasional bonus episodes, outtakes, they'll get new music and videos of mine before I release them to anyone else, and other cool stuff. You can follow me, Kevin Hyder, as well as Song and Story Podcast on social media. And you can learn more, listen, and subscribe today at songandstorypodcast.com. Thanks for listening. With everything you just talked about, your recording process, was that the case with the battle? Like when you, when you sat down to record it, were you still writing it? Or had that one been tweaked and played enough where it was kind of good to go? Yeah, at the time I had probably played that song somewhere north of 50 times. Okay. And then went into the studio, which is probably why, you know, coming in I was more confident on that than I would have been most. The uh, same was true of Fount of Love, the final track on that album. The rest would have been a little bit more still in flux when I walked in the door and, you know, had 48 hours. It wasn't like I was rushing through each song, but I probably played every one of those songs seven or eight different ways over the course of probably an hour and a half each. Okay. The battle included? Mm, the battle excluded. Uh, Fount of Love excluded as well. The how, rest many, how, in- many, how many times, how many takes do you think for the battle? Oh, maybe one or two. Okay. Not Again, including just, mistakes or punch-ins? Uh, no. I, w- I would say including mistakes and punch-ins, maybe three or four. Okay. You know? Yeah. That's good. But, <laughs> yeah. That's fast. But it, again, it's just piano, right? And um, yeah, with the rest, it was it was just like I, I needed to kind of journey with the song. And I, I just have a little bit too full of a life and schedule most of the time to do that when I'm not paying for it. You know? So there's something <laughs> about like being yeah. in a studio where I know that like... The clock is ticking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And every minute counts. It it's forces rough. me. Oh, for me, it's necessary. Yeah. Yeah, sadly, it's what I have yeah. to do. <laughs>